Hi, this is Democratic strategist Allie Lapp. And this is Republican strategist Liesl Hickey. And welcome to House Talk with Allie and Liesl. How are you doing, Liesl? Good, Allie. How are you? I am great. And uh, I'm so happy that the special elections are behind us. Thank goodness. Yes, I think everybody is. And now that they are, I think those of us who think about house races on a daily basis, the house nerds, as we like to call ourselves, right, <laughs> um, can really start looking at how the battle for November of 2018 is shaping up what the landscape's gonna look like and how the races are shaping up and candidates are starting to get in races and they're raising money and all these things are happening and all eyes are really on what's gonna happen in November of 2018. Um, the way that I think most of us look at it is, will Democrats win enough seats to take the majority or not? And today we're going to take a big picture look at the House landscape. Right now it's a little too soon um, to talk about individual races. We still have uh, lots of candidates declaring on both sides. So we're going to kind of take a step back and look more broadly at the districts and what they could look like as we head into 18. And to do that, uh, we are going to be joined by Nathan Gonzalez of Inside Elections. Nathan is an House expert. He's a top DC political prognosticator and um, just overall great guy. Nathan, welcome and thank you for being on House Talk today. Absolutely, thank you for having me. Yeah, well this is great. So Ali and I were just joking earlier that this is a lot of fun for us because you spent a lot of time visiting with us when we were at the DCCC and the NRCC and in the outside groups, grilling us about various races and what we thought the elections were gonna look like. So it's nice that the tables are turned today. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't so bad, you, you survived. <laughs> we did, I'm just kidding, but this is great. So just to start off to kind of help us get a big picture uh, look at what you think this uh, election could look like? Well, I think, first of all, the podcast is timely because I think the, the story of the 2018 elections is going to be the House. I mean, the Senate is 52-48. It looks close, but it's actually far away for Democrats in terms of getting the majority. Uh, I think history is on Democrats' side. When you look at, I looked at 18 of the last 20 midterm elections, uh, the President's party has lost House seats. In those 18 elections, the average seat loss is 33 seats. Democrats need a net gain of 24 seats in November in order to get to a majority. And I think it's, it's too early to put a specific number, but I think we have to say the House is in play based on those historical numbers. And I'm not one of those people, you know, because of the 2016 elections and what happened to say, well, all history is irrelevant because Donald Trump is in the mix and President Trump is in the mix. Nothing matters anymore. It's like, no, I, I think it's okay to at least start with historical trends and then let's make the, the president or the Republican Party prove that this is going to be different than, than these normal midterm elections. And when you look at the map, uh, I think Democrats have the right strategy right now that they are trying to get as many candidates in as many districts as possible. I don't think it's limited right now to a specific type of district or region. I think it's, it's still up in the air and still yet to be determined where the fight for the House is going to, is going to be played out. And the the other thing, though, that I hear most often is that redistricting. Well, because of redistricting, the House isn't in play. And from my experience of doing this, uh, you know, when, when you, you, you both know this, that when parties draw districts, they don't draw safe districts. You draw safe enough districts, usually a performance of about 55 or 56 percent. 
And under normal conditions, that's enough to win. But if we have an abnormal election or a wave election, the districts that look safe or are supposed to be safe suddenly are not so safe anymore. Well, how many districts right now have you identified as being on the radar? When uh, you know our, our ratings are, are on the, on our site at InsideElections.com, we have 40 Republican seats. Uh, Republicans defending 40 seats, Democrats defending uh, 14. Uh, but that number is not a static number. I went back and looked in, in 2009, the spring of 2009, at the beginning of the Obama administration, we had a whopping 33 seats on our list. 23 were Democratic-held seats, 10 were Republican seats. By the time we got to November of 2010, we had over 100 seats on our list. 100 of them were Democratic seats, 9 of them were Republican seats, and Democrats lost 63 in 2010. So. Just because the, the playing field is what it is now, again, doesn't mean that this is how it's going to be for the next 16 months. So Nathan, tell us about that ranking process. You, you mentioned that you, that you have it on your site at Inside Elections. You guys rank and rate races. How, what goes into that process? How do you decide? Tell us about the categories. We're definitely going to reference these ratings as we go through our and house challenge races today. You. We're going to challenge <laughs> yeah. you on your ratings. Uh, and, I, and I appreciate it because I think there's sometimes a little, there's so much mystery that I, that I go into a, a dark room with a, a six pack of Mountain Dew and listen to heavy, heavy metal music and just come out with these ratings. That's but uh, yeah, It happened once. It didn't really work out. Uh, we, we don't have to talk about it. But um, I, you know, we do have, we try to, uh, we look at these districts and try to identify first, what are the most competitive districts? What are the districts that are going to matter for the majority? And then, um, and rate them from toss up to tilt. We have this unique category called tilting, Democratic or Republican, which is between lean and likely and solid. And that's trying to give our readers uh, an idea of who's most likely to win. We're, I don't think we're smart enough to try to do the margin, but just likelihood of winning. And it's probably frustrating maybe to people at the committees or people that read us that there's not a magic formula. Uh, it's not because, you know, the presidential uh, performance was this and the candidate has raised this and the incumbent voted this way. And it's not, um, we take as much data into, into account as possible, but it's not a magic formula. But I, w I should say that uh, throughout the cycle, there are rhythms to how we do the ratings. And at the beginning, I think a lot of it is based on history. Right. How was this district voted in the past? Um, how strong is the incumbent? And then though, as the, in the, and then we get the candidates and the challengers, and we're trying to evaluate the strength of those, of those candidates. But then toward the end of the cycle, it's all about polling. <laughs> mm -hmm. It's all about what is the current state of play, because you might start a cycle, which I think I know what's gonna happen. This is where we have it rated. But then it just doesn't work out that way, or or it does work out that way. But the the polling at the end is what drives things, and and I spend most of my time in the final weeks or months of the campaign um, begging for polling numbers right, right, that don't right. see the light of day. I, I, and think, I think I've gotten those calls before, <laughs> and I think it's in everyone's interest uh, to to you know have good ratings and good data because it, I think it could drive decisions. But that's actually what I wanted to ask you two about. I I kind of know how our ratings play into what the committees and the outside group do, do, but how do you digest what we do or our friends and colleagues at the Cook Report? How does it factor into this game? Well, the, the ratings do factor into the game in a pretty serious way, actually, especially at the candidate level, because they use your ratings to um, show viability, to raise money, to create momentum within their districts. And so, th so they do factor it in, into a lot of ways. Or, um, you know, especially for new candidates who are trying to raise name ID and show that they're real and serious, to have a rating uh, in a district that's either toss-up or lean, they say, hey, look, see, 
this is something you got to pay attention to, and I'm the candidate who can actually move the needle here. And as someone who's led an outside group for the last couple of years, um, it's important for us, too, because as you all know, as a super PAC, we can't actually work with candidates. We can't get their polling data. We don't sit down and meet with them and hear about their campaign strategy. You have more interaction with the candidates than, than I do. And so when I see how you've ranked a, a race, it does matter, and I, it, it factors into our thinking. We say, well, you know, look, they're really impressed with this candidate that's running, or they're really unimpressed with this candidate mm -hmm. that's running. And candidate strength really, really matters in these races. There's no question. It's, it's very difficult to win even a good district with a subpar candidate. And, and I've lowered, you know, we meet with candidates all the time. You know, it's usually about 150 a cycle, uh, but that could be more as there are 14 million Democrats running this time. <laughs> yep. but, um, but, yeah, it's one of the things that I enjoy in trying to get a first glance. And sometimes, could you read about someone on paper? And, but it's different sometimes than when you meet them in, yep. in real life. But some of the conversations about ratings that I enjoy the most are when I get a call from, uh, you know, maybe a manager or uh, a chief of staff trying to get their member onto the list of competitive races so they can raise money, but not too far onto the right. list. They don't want to be <laughs> right. a toss-up, but just so that it, it legitimizes what, you know, them trying to bolster their campaign coffers. I'm sure that happens. And this must be an interesting cycle um, to try to rate these races early because, as you said, you really look at historical performance and perspective. And what's so challenging and different about house races this cycle is you have a lot of races where um, – Historically, the Republican incumbent, let's just say, has done very well. They've gotten 56, 57 percent of the vote. Barack Obama lost the district. But then Hillary Clinton did so much better. So how are you approaching that just from a numbers perspective, um, some of those districts? Cautiously. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I, I think if 2016 didn't bring a level of humility to a lot of people trying to evaluate elections, and I don't, I don't know what will, um, I think you know, I am, we're trying to figure out what is the baseline for these districts. Uh, we'll go, you know, we'll talk about some specific districts in a bit, but, uh, you know, I'm not sure that the 2016 election results, they might have been an aberration rather than the new rule. They might not right. even be in the beginning of a trend. It might just have been so much of an outlier uh, that it's not exactly relevant in looking at what's, it, it's not as relevant of a factor as what other things. But then I start to think about 2012 and 2008 and that maybe those elections were unique to President Obama and his his operation and his ability to get things uh, to get to turn out the vote. And so <laughs> we're sort of left, um, you know, we're, we're left in some murky waters. Yeah. But I still, I guess I'm a, I'm a firm believer that data at the end of the day, although flawed, that there are enough partisan pollsters on both sides that have a vested interest in getting correct numbers to make millions of dollars of decisions, that that will... Uh, that, we'll, that we'll get good data at the end. And, and uh, because, you know, the presidential, I was not saying that Donald Trump was going to be elected president of the United States, but on our House and Senate margins, we were just off by a, a seat uh, or two seats in the House in terms of what Democrats were going to do. And I think that's because the, the polling data on those specific districts and states was actually pretty good. Do you find uh, that you spend much time in the actual districts, and does that play into your calculations much? I mean, you said you spend time, obviously, with lots of candidates, but do you all spend much time actually going to the districts or some of the top districts to say, okay, I'm going to get a sense of really what's happening on the ground, and does that ever play into your to your process? The short answer is no. Uh, the, the longer answer is... I struggle with this because particularly after 2016, one of the reactions was, well, every reporter just needs to go to diners in Northeast right. Indiana, and that's <laughs> going to solve all your problems. It's like, well, 
I, I still, maybe this is Stu beating it into me, but anecdotes can kill <laughs> in, in the, the analytical world. And, you know, going to a district and going to a rally and saying, oh, everyone loves John Ossoff. Okay, that, you know, that might be true, but what does that actually mean for votes and, and the campaign operation? So, uh, this, you know, we don't go district by, you know, visiting these districts. I'm not morally opposed to it. I mean, I love all of America and everyone <laughs> in it, but, uh, but it's, uh, I think I, I would prefer, you know, if you, if you tell me, would you rather go to a diner and meet with people in district or give me five polls or six polls, three on each side, I will take the polling every single every single time that means he's still going to be calling us asking us <laughs> that's what that means <laughs> this, this podcast is outing you uh, as, as sources. so let's uh, let's dive into some of the specific districts um you know so when, when i was at the DCCC in 2006 working for then chairman rahm Emanuel, my task was incumbent protection which was super fun because incumbents love it when the DCCC goes to their districts and tells them how to do things better and make sure they get reelected. And and Rom was a never-ending source of good ideas. He would he would call me at like 7:30 in the morning after his morning swim and say, "I have a great idea for Melissa Bean. Here's what she should do." <laughs> uh, it was it was great. But that was the first time I think in over 80 years that no the incumbent um, that that a party had not lost any incumbent seats in Congress. So that was a great cycle for us for incumbent protection. And as Rahm always used to say, and Leader Pelosi still says today, you can't add by subtracting. So if Democrats want to pick up 24 seats, their first task has to be, let's protect our incumbents and the seats that we hold that are now open. Um, And so let's start by talking about some of those districts that are held by a Democrat that Donald Trump carried. Yeah, and I think this is actually a story that has not been reported enough. There are 12 seats, like Ali said, that Donald Trump won that Democrats are currently sitting in. And these are the best pickup opportunities for Republicans. And most of the cycle's focus right now is Republican incumbents who you know, are feeling like they're on defense. But really, there's some really interesting seats in this bucket of races where I think we have a great opportunity where Democrats barely won And um, some of them have been through tough fights before. Uh, Some are new and have not been through, you know, a a really tough cycle. So I think a couple that I I think are interesting that, um, and Allie and I have a few on here that we've um, over time have kind of gone back and forth on quite a bit and 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 what we think their viability is. But a couple that I want to highlight are are two that you actually have in your toss-up column, and that's, We'll start with uh, one in New Jersey 5, and this is a district that mostly encompasses Bergen County, New Jersey, sort of suburban New York bedroom city district where Scott Garrett lost last cycle. He was one of, you know, a handful of Republican, not even a handful, of Republican incumbents who lost. He had some issues uh, within the district for... Well, I'll let Ali explain the you're, awesome. You're being, you're being very awesome, diplomatic. I am being diplomatic. <laughs> he, he, he threw away his own race. He created his own problems. He, I mean, these were self-inflicted wounds. Well, there's uh, no doubt they were self-inflicted <laughs> wounds. And on top of that, Ali and House Majority Pack ran some of the best attack ads I've seen in a long time against Scott Garrett, highlighting these self-inflicted wounds. The ads were great, but we also did an airplane banner over the Jersey Shore. <laughs> 
um, that let his voters know what a what an awful member of Congress Scott Garrett was, and I think that really was what helped provide it's a good thing governor, margin there. It's a good thing Governor Christie didn't close the beach when you paid for that banner. <laughs> exactly, that would have been a big waste of five hundred dollars. <laughs> well, this district is. Um, Josh Gottheimer, the newly elected Democrat, only won it with 51%. And I would say that this is a Republican district at heart. I mean, they're very fiscally conservative Republicans here. There's will be, I think, a, a slew of good Republican candidates, you know, that'll come out in this district following the New Jersey midterm um, elections that they're having right now. So I think we'll know more about that district as we go into the first of the year. But what, what do, how do you see this district, Nathan? Is this one that you think should be on the top of Republican pickup opportunities? I think the reason why we started with it as toss-up is because the the Trump performance and because, you know, Gottheimer had the he was a great candidate, he raised a ton of money, uh, but he had the the fort the great fortune of running against Scott Garrett, and so I'm assuming that Republicans will nominate someone who's not Scott Garrett, and that should not bring some of the baggage with it, but. Republicans are still looking for a candidate, and um, they're, it's not particularly clear that they, they may not have a, a, strong, a strong candidate. But you know, with Garrett, I think this district, and it's changed forms a little bit over the, over the years, but Garrett had suffered from being, I think, in Marge Rockema's shadow, who was uh, like a, a legitimate moderate Republican. Right. People say, well, he's not her, so he's, too, he's not a good fit for the district. But as you pointed out, it's a pretty Republican district underneath the surface. Again, the question is, I think I mean, Gottheimer is going to have the money he needs to defend himself. Can Republicans get a credible candidate to, um, you know, to really take advantage uh, or to really put the focus on Gottheimer without the, gar the baggage garbage of Garrett right. being in the mix? Well, look, the Northeast was one of Trump's stronger regions. He really outperformed um, past Republican candidates like Romney and McCain in the Northeast, probably more so than any other region with the possible exception of the upper Midwest. And even so, he only won this district by one point. So this is a very swing district. I do think that it has voted Republican for Congress for a long time, but Josh Gottheimer really does fit this district. He's fiscally conservative, he's working his tail off, he will raise a ton of money, and it's an incredibly expensive district to communicate in. When we did our first poll there last spring, People knew who Scott Garrett was, but they had no idea of the controversies surrounding him. Mm. And we went on the air very early. We spent a ton of money. There was so much money spent in this race. I think ultimately the question for Republicans is going to be, do we want to invest five to seven million dollars in this one seat, or do we have too many incumbents that are under attack that we need to defend with that money instead? Well, I think we'd agree and that this should all be a toss-up. So there you go, Nathan. <laughs> Maybe for I, now. I, I, Maybe for now. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, we already have tilting. If we had a 14-category system, you know, I, I think, Garrett, the burden, when you look at just incumbent re-election rates in general, it's usually over well over 90% in most cycles, uh, except for a couple of those waves. I think the burden of proof is on the challenging party to prove how are you going to do this. And even though, you know, we've talked about Gottheimer's situation, it's still up to Republicans to prove this is going to happen. Well, another one that uh, is in your toss-up category and has been the bane of Republicans' existence over the last several cycles is Arizona 1. So northern, northeastern uh, part of Arizona, Flagstaff area, but then also goes all the way down to uh, Penal County, which is, you know, right there outside of Mesa. And so you've got a Phoenix media market. You've got, uh, you know, a really large district here with... Um, 
that's, you know, with a, a mix of, it, which is mostly rural, but also, uh, you know, you've got, you know, some suburbs around Phoenix. And, and I think the largest Native American uh, constituency in the entire country in terms of in a house district. So this is actually, when I was going back and reminding myself about this district, in 06, Rick Renzi, the Republican incumbent, actually held this district in the 06 wave election, and um, which I being reminded of that I thought was interesting thinking about this cycle. So this is toggled back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. This has been one that has just been so hard for us. And I can say I, at the NRCC, pumped millions and millions of dollars into this district. And this is one, though, that I still feel like Republicans have a great shot at. What are your what are your initial feelings? It's somewhat of a similar storyline to New Jersey in that uh, O'Halloran, the Democratic congressman now, defeated a flawed a Republican candidate, um, Sheriff Babu, who uh, just you can put him in the Google machine and, and you, can, <laughs> you can probably waste an afternoon reading about the stories, but a, a damaged candidate. And so, if uh, let's, um, you know, we're waiting to see if Republicans will nominate someone who doesn't have that baggage, but also the, the challenges that Arizona is a late primary. Very so, late. Cons consistently, you have three or four candidates going all the way into the late summer, early fall, and then there's just a quick turnaround. And in such an expansive district, I mean, you need a small plane to get around the district. You can't just drive around the district. At least that's not the most efficient way to do it. It's it's tough to do. And so, again, because of his situation got reelected, that's why we've started with it in Tossa, but it's it's not going to be easy. Yep. And yeah. this is another district where Trump won by one point, right. so very, very evenly divided. And there's no question Democrats have really benefited in Arizona 1 over the last few cycles by a Republican primary electorate in Arizona 1 that uh, that nominates crazy people, frankly. I mean, they have had some terrible nominees there, and they've had choices, but they kind of keep gravitating. I mean, I couldn't believe that Paul Babu won that primary. Um, so I think that's... He was not the top choice. <laughs> I'm sure he was not the top choice, but he was the top choice of the Republicans in that district. And so that, I think, is, is their challenge. And O'Halloran, look, he's a former Republican, turned Democrat, very moderate, um, you know, I think this will be a competitive election as it always is, but ultimately I think O'Halloran will come out on top. And one of, Ann Kirkpatrick, you know, has represented this district on and off uh, until she, you know, when she runs for statewide, but one of her great successes was her ability to, uh, her connection to the reservations. And so I think it's, you know, that's part, that was part of her success and can O'Halloran uh, replicate that as a key question as well. So real quick on our last race we'll talk about in this uh, in this category, and another one that Allie and I talk a lot about is Minnesota 8, the Iron Range of Minnesota, and with uh, Rick Nolan as the Democrat incumbent there, once again, one with only 50% against Stuart Mills last cycle for that rematch. This cycle, uh, Republicans have, have recruited what seems like a very impressive recruit in uh, Pete Stauber and former hockey player, but also I think what's really important about this candidate is he uh, was uh, on the Duluth uh, police force for a very long time. He's part of that piece of the district, which is sort of the Democrat-leaning piece, and Trump won this district big. And you have as a lean D, which I'm going to disagree with. I would <laughs> add that to the toss-up category. <laughs> uh, so the the story, about, and I've, I've kind of become... I love this district uh, and following it. The reasoning behind the I do not love it. <laughs> the just the, it's fascinating because it, you have the Iron Range. I mean, it, it's it's another large district. Talk yeah. about Arizona one and Minnesota eight, but it's a district where you have still have a group of blue collar Democrats, and and, and this is a, a 
constituency that Democrats nationally have struggled with or in other places. So that dynamic and how Rick Nolan has been able to to survive these close races. Uh, but I started to look at, I went back and looked at um, the, pre uh, the results of the other statewide offices by congressional district. And looking at Minnesota 8, except for the last two presidential races, the, D the Democratic candidate or DFL candidate in Minnesota has won every time. We're talking about out of 16 races I looked at over four election cycles, the two that Republicans have won were Trump and Mitt Romney. So I think underneath the surface, this is still wants to be a Democratic district or a DFL district, but um, But it doesn't want to be close. a Nancy Pelosi Democratic district. Right. And that is why I think this should be in a toss-up column <laughs> <laughs> instead of a, we'll continue to fight about this one, I think, um, over this cycle. I think Allie and I will as well. And let's remember, look, Rick Nolan, Rick Nolan embodies the Iron Range. I mean, culturally, he really does fit that district. And I think if he could be reelected in cycles that were as lousy as 2014 and 2016 in Minnesota was particularly bad for Democrats, I think he's going to be fine in 2018. Yeah, and Rick Nolan is a fascinating figure because when he was in Congress the first time around, he, in the 70s, he, he in was the 1970s. He was not um, uh, regarded as a moderate member, and he represented a different type of district. And now he is. You know, trying to transform himself, and on the ground, I think that is there's still some tension with, uh, particularly when you're talking about mining and his stances. But he's managed to keep the coalition together enough. It's been close. I, I actually don't think Mills has complete. Stuart Mills has completely ruled out running again. So maybe there will be a, uh, a situation there, but we'll see. All right. Well, moving on. Let's move on. Yeah. Let's move on to Democratic offensive opportunities. So. Um, as, as Democrats, as we look at the landscape, I think that there's a couple of different categories of races that, that I look at in terms of targeting for pickups. Um, the first category are the 23 seats that are held by a Republican that Hillary Clinton carried. So let's start by talking about those districts. And one of the things that I think is, is really fascinating about this group of districts is that some of them are really relatively new onto our radar screen. Um, in several of these districts, Democrats didn't even have a legitimate or any candidate at all running um, because Romney had carried them and the Republican incumbent had won by, you know, double digits in the past. So some of these are places that it's going to be fun for all three of us because we haven't been talking about the Pete Sessions district in Texas before in terms of a possible pickup. So it's always kind of fun and new to go to new places and not just talk about the same old races. So as I look at these districts, the first category and the first region of the country I want to think about is Orange County, California, and, and Southern California more broadly, really. Um, there are a bunch of, there are seven districts there that Hillary Clinton carried in California, and many of these are in Southern California. So one that I think Democrats are particularly excited about is Congressman Daryl Issa, who we narrowly lost to last time. Um, he had not really had competitive races in the past, but last time he won by less than 1,700 votes, very close. And that's sort of San Diego uh, and no north of San Diego suburbs. And then further north in Orange County, Mimi Walters in California 45 is sort of a new district that we haven't talked much about before. Hillary Clinton won it by about five points. We have a couple really strong Democratic candidates that are raising a lot of money there. And I think there are a lot of opportunities in California for us this cycle. I think every UCI law professor uh, is running against <laughs> Mimi Walters. Uh, so I, where do we? Let's start with let's start with ISA. I mean, I think ISA actually. I'm not uh, I'm not a strategist, uh, but I think ISA may have made a strategic mistake last cycle in that uh, as his race started to get more attention and uh, his opponent started to raise more money. 
uh, ISA chose to basically just match Democratic spending. We're talking about the richest member of Congress who could have just spent Doug Applegate into oblivion. And he didn't really do that. He kind of just matched it. It ended up being a close race. And now Congressman ISA will have more formidable challengers than what he had last time. And so and, and ISA is in a unique situation because he's a, he has a higher profile than an average House member by being uh, leading investigations against Hillary Clinton on Benghazi. And he's kind of drawn, draws more attention. But Orange County in general, to me, is fascinating because you have, um, I think Orange County is still a Republican county. Uh, it did not vote for Donald Trump. I mean, it went for Hillary Clinton. I, I think Dave Wasserman at the Cook Report pointed out the first time a Democrat has won Orange County since 1936. But to me, this is a great, uh, it's a microcosm of the fight that we're going to see in that will those Republicans who don't like Donald Trump throw out Mimi Walters or throw out Dana Rohrabacher or throw out Ed Royce or Daryl Issa? You know, are they so... <laughs> Have they shifted their allegiances away from the party in order to take it out on, on uh, these members of Congress, or do they just not like Donald Trump? And that's the, I think that's the, the murkiness that we're seeing, and it's part of what we saw in Georgia Six. Is okay, these are not Trump Republicans, but will they vote for other Republicans still? I think I think you're exactly right on that, and I think that is an underlying problem for Democrats in many places across the country, just like you said. But California is kind of ground zero, and in both of those districts. Uh, and Mimi Walters and uh, Daryl Issa and, and others in Orange County. And I think, obviously, with Pelosi sitting in California, I think that adds a whole different dynamic to those, uh, you know, to those problems for Democrats. And that is why I think, e even though, to your point, that they might not have voted for, for President Trump and they might not love President Trump, but at the end of the day, they are Republicans. They come home to vote for their Republican candidates, and the races are going to be tough, and Republicans in those districts have to prove why they should be reelected. They should be talking about the things that matter at home. Uh, and I think that's something Daryl Issa could improve upon and probably understands that. Uh, I think that's something Mimi Walters, you know, is absolute home run all the time. She, she gets that. But that that's going to be an overriding problem for Democrats going into 18. Well, look, I think, I think, Dem, I think, you know, Liesl makes a valid point whether or not the, the Trump-Hillary numbers can translate down ballot. And I think that is a huge unanswered question at this point. It's too early to answer that question. I think um, now that Trump is actually the president and the leader of the Republican Party, it's a lot harder for Republicans to run away from him. You know, ask the 63 Democrats who lost in 2010 if they were able to run away from their president. They weren't. Um, and so I think that's something that will get, you know, be played out over the next over the next year. But is even that cycle different? And, and I, I would encourage everyone to go listen to your your conversation with Jill Normington, Democratic pollster, talking about independence on, on your previous podcast about how, yeah, there was that in 2016, there was that disconnect between voters not thinking about Donald Trump as a Republican. So now that he is in office, does that come together? And I know that you know, she thought that it was going to come, <laughs> that that was going to be easier. I guess I'm not there yet. I'm open-minded. Right. Uh, but Donald Trump is such a unique <laughs> figure that are they going, are voters going to blame, I guess it could work two different ways, right? Are they going to blame Republican members of Congress for Donald Trump Jr.'s meetings and emails, or will they blame Republicans for not holding him accountable enough, uh, you know, those are or, possibilities, uh, but it's still, also, it's not a guarantee. Look, I remember back in 2006, some of the scandals that were tainting the Republican Party, the campaign finance scandals, and then even Katrina. I've always believed that Katrina was a huge factor in that 2006 wave election. We didn't run ads on Katrina around the country. We didn't run ads on Jack Abramoff 
you know, in districts around the country, but it sort of tainted the Republican brand and, you know, depressed enthusiasm, I think, on their side, motivated our base. So I think that's really the kind of impact we're more likely to see, rather than voters saying, it's Mimi Walters' fault that Donald Trump is this, that, or the other thing that they don't like about him. I don't think you're going to see that, but I do think it will taint the brand. So let, let's talk quickly about a couple of the other types of races in this category that Hillary won a lot. You know, we talked about California. There are several in Florida. There's a lot of sort of southern sunbelt districts. And the other category are really the suburban districts around the country. So places like Colorado 6 in suburban Denver, where Democrats have tried to take out Mike Kaufman for many cycles. My theory on this one, my theory on this one, Liesl, and I know you have a vested interest in this one. <laughs> Allie never gives me a break on this race, <laughs> ever. I think in that race, we've had good candidates in bad years and bad candidates in good years. And this year, this year, we're going to have a good candidate in a good year for Democrats. We will see. You've got a very competitive Democratic primary we there. We do. So, you know, but look, we're not giving up on Colorado 6 yet. It's just too good of a district for us. Um, I can't bribe Allie even on this one. <laughs> and then, in, you know, suburban Pennsylvania, there are several districts there that are very competitive. We have some compelling candidates in, in races there. And then, you know, just a few miles away from where we sit in Virginia 10, Barbara Comstock is going to have a very challenging race. With She's got several Democratic challengers who are raising a lot of money in a district that is not at all enamored of Donald Trump and the direction of the Republican Party right now. And Comstock is a good example of someone who has to find that, that sweet spot between needing Trump voters, Trump supporters and people who hate Donald Trump in order to win. She can't, it's not an either or proposition. She has to have every Republican in that district and she still has to get some, you know, independents or Democrats to cross the, the aisle for her. And her district is tricky because of proximity to D.C. where they're those voters are engaged with the sort of day-to-day -day media stories that are coming out um, unlike other districts that are further away where they're not actually focused on sort of what's going on every single second of the day here in D.C. That's right. And then um, moving on to the next set of districts where Democrats are looking at for pickups, um, there are a number of districts out there that Hillary Clinton did not win, but Barack Obama did either once or twice. And, you know, these districts I think of as the upper Midwest and the Northeast. There are a ton of these districts um, in New York in Michigan, in Iowa, um, places where Donald Trump just really outperformed past Republican candidates. And I think Democrats are would be wise not to walk away from these districts just because Donald Trump won them. In you know, 2006, when we picked up the House, we won a lot of districts that George Bush had carried just two years before. Um, so, you know, I think there's a couple good opportunities for Democrats in Iowa, two districts that um, that Barack Obama carried both in 08 and in 2012, Iowa 1 and Iowa 3. You have Congressman Rod Blum and David Young. Um, there are a number of Democratic challengers in both of these districts. I think those will be very competitive. I think when you when you look at all these different lists and buckets of seats, I think the bottom line is that 24 seats that Democrats need to gain is enough that you can't just cherry pick. You can't just get one here or there. They're going to have to be a handful of states where you get a handful of seats, whether that's New York or California or Pennsylvania, uh, because it's just like, just getting one in Michigan and one in Florida, it's just not going to, it's not going to, the math isn't there. So it's going to have to be uh, groups of districts somewhere. Well, there, one thing that is evident is there are a lot of Democratic candidates coming out to run this cycle, and there is enthusiasm there to, for folks to, to take on this challenge. But how do the Democratic primaries play out this cycle? I think sometimes these very competitive primaries uh, can be a blessing. I think that sometimes it can also be a, a serious curse. And those 
like you said, as they expand the field, they could also limit opportunities by electing people through their primary process that, that aren't attractive in a general election, especially in these suburban races. Yeah, I think in general, having more candidates rather than fewer candidates is better <laughs> for a party. I mean, it gives you more options. I, I'm glad you said that about primaries because I think we're there's this narrative that primaries are always bad. I actually think primaries can be good. It can force candidates to ramp up their campaigns. If you can't win a competitive primary, how are you going to beat a, a great incumbent, uh, a well-tuned incumbent? And so, but for the Democratic Party, you know, it does matter about outcomes. Some of it, the timing of primaries, if they're late primaries, that can impact things. But also, what are the outcome? If you get a, a polarizing, an ideological nominee, does that hinder a party's chances? Sure, it's happened in the past, but also we don't know what the, we don't know what the entire cycle is going to look like. Let's, let's stop talking in generalities. Specifically in New York, a few cycles ago with um, Anne Marie Burkle in New York. I would argue that she was to the right ideologically of that district, but because of the type of cycle it was, that didn't end up mattering. That wasn't the priority. It wasn't what voters were looking at first. So it, it would be easy to say, oh, that's a Bernie Sanders candidate who won that primary and he or she can't win. It's like, well, maybe. It depends on what what the mood of the electorate is like and why that matters. And, and, and if I, it's a way of election, it honestly doesn't matter. Yeah, and, and, and then it'll be the re-election will be what's the, the biggest thing under different circumstances. And I am consistently getting, it's usually from Republicans talking about, well, look at the Civil War, the Democratic Civil War. And I would just point to that for eight years, Republicans have had a Civil War, an ideological battle. And where are Republicans right now? They control the White House, the House, and the Senate. You can simultaneously be in a civil war and win a whole lot of seats uh, and be That's successful. a really good point. And look, I, I agree with you, Nathan. I think primaries are not a bad thing. And particularly, in, you know, I mentioned earlier, there's all these districts where Democrats have not even had candidates running in previous cycles. Let's look at the two potentially competitive districts in Texas that we haven't looked at before, the Sessions District. Um, and uh, so it's Texas 7 and Texas 32. And we have several really good Democratic candidates running in both of those districts. They're raising a lot of money. And they're exciting activists there that haven't had anything to get excited about in a long, long time. So I, th I think the biggest downside of primaries is that the day after the primary, the winner is <clears throat> excuse me, usually broke. Um, but with you know stronger party committees, outside groups, that financial advantage that the Republican incumbent will have can be alleviated. And, you know, Democrats don't need as much money as Republicans have to pick up some of these seats. They just need enough to get a message out. Mm -hmm. And if there is a wave, um, you know, underfunded candidates have beat well-funded incumbents many a time over the last 10, 15 years in what are, can be called wave elections. And I haven't looked at it in, in House races, and, and I should, but I know in Senate races, I went back and looked at how much money a challenger needs to spend compared to an incumbent senator. It's usually, if you get about 70% of, of the spending, you can you can have a, a successful challenge. Well, one thing good about primaries is it does allow candidates to raise their profile so that when they do come out, they've usually gone through some debates, they've, you know, had an earned media tour, uh, they've been covered in their local paper quite a bit, so at least when they come out, there is recognition. And I think that's important when you look at this class of Democratic candidates. What is this class full of? It is full of a lot of outsiders, first-time candidates, military veterans, businessmen and women. This is a new game, and what I, what I found in meeting first candidates over the years is that sometimes first-time candidates are great, it all works, it all, but sometimes it just doesn't. It doesn't, people, oh, I have to ask money for eight hours a day and then go to a dinner <laughs> and ask people for more money, or 
the, when the spotlight is really bright on your business or your family, sometimes that doesn't work. So having getting time to have campaigns and candidates up to speed, I think, is a good thing for Democrats. Agreed. Agreed. Well, look, we didn't have time to go into all these races in great detail. And I think over the next year, Liesl and I will be looking at all these races really closely for, for our listeners here. What are you going to be looking at as we wrap up here, Nathan, over the next, let's just say, six months to really figure out how do you shift some of these races from likely Republican to lean Republican? And what, what are the things you'll be watching in the next few months? I think the trying to get a handle on these Democratic candidates and challengers and their strength. Uh, we'll see if there are Republican retirements. That's one of the quickest ways in the middle of a cycle that we would change a rating is if someone retires and it changes the dynamic of a race completely. Uh, but also watching what Republicans do on the Hill, uh, because I think how much they're able to get done or what they don't do could have an impact on Republican enthusiasm. Because fundamentally, if if Republicans don't deliver on more promises, I think that there are some Trump supporters, not just Trump voters, Trump supporters who will be who will think that Republicans on the Hill are part of the problem or they're blocking the president's agenda. And why would they turn out in 2018 if the president's not on the ballot? And so I think watching the Hill will be will be interesting and just kind of watching the general dynamics of of what the president, even though we don't know what that connection might be, he's still going to be a part of the conversation in, in these races. No question. Thanks, Nathan, for joining us today. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you so much for joining us today. Liesl and I will see you in two weeks as we talk more house races. Mm -hmm.